Stay of proceedings. The state government intends to raise the age of criminal responsibility to 12 years old after several years of advocacy. I am very concerned that if you raised it too quickly, you are going to have unintended consequences. You're going to have kids falling through the gap and you're going to have a waiting list of kids stepping into custody. Kick off. A Tasmanian AFL team will join the league thanks to federal government funding. But the state's Labor opposition leader isn't happy. We've been very clear that we think Tasmania's priorities are health and housing and tackling the cost of living, not building a new stadium. And last dish, tributes flow for MasterChef judge Jock Zonfrillo, who died on the day of the Melbourne Cooking Show's series return. It's just really infectious, um, so much charm, so much charisma and just such a massive shock and a massive loss. Hear all the details from Sim Media's news team later this hour. Good afternoon, you're listening to On The Beat, wrapping this week's biggest stories. I'm Ashikin. And I'm Declan, broadcasting from Sin's Melbourne studios, based in the Eastern Kulin Nation. We'd like to respectfully acknowledge the Wurundjeri people whose lands we're reporting from today. Jika, welcome to the program, and thanks for your company. We've got lots of news to come. Online campaigns targeting transgender people have spilled out into Melbourne's real-world communities, with cafes, libraries and state parliament becoming settings for demonstrations. Researcher Neve White has been exploring how young queer women engage with queer history content online and says this present-day drama is a key concern of her study participants. Loudon Queer's Tammy Brooke asked White what she's hearing. It's an interesting time. It's something... Um, so. The way my research works is I'm interviewing um, participants at the moment, young queer people, um, predominantly young queer women or non-binary people who have like a relationship to womanhood. And, and they're bringing this up in conversation. Um, you know, I'm asking about queer history, but things that are coming up at the moment are um, a lot of what's going on in the US over transphobia, but also how it's coming here in the Australian context. Um, yeah, like you said, I was at the State Library a few weeks ago for the Trans Day of Visibility rally, um, and a few weeks before that, I mean, content warning, I guess, in terms of like there was um, a transphobic incident with some Nazi protesters here, and that's like really scary to see. So it's quite obvious that we're living through like a um, a historical moment in and of itself, right, where we're seeing debates about queer and especially trans lives happening in real time. Um, yeah, even phrasing it as a debate is a little uh, strange, maybe using the other side's word. Like, um, it's a bit distressing, I think, to, to think about uh, where we are in society at the moment. Well, why do you think that there is a current surge in... Cause I don't know how it is for you as an academic researcher, an actual smart, important person, but me, just a regular person kind of on the sidelines that is just seeing a lot of the backlash and things that are happening at the moment. Why do you think there's been a sudden surge in that? Because the way that I've been consuming the media, I feel like, like obviously queer people have existed for so long, trans people have existed forever, and suddenly now I feel like there's just been this huge spike in just, backlash and hateful speech and things like that regarding the trans community. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's a really good question. And I wish I had like a, a really coherent answer. I think a lot of it maybe depends on national context in terms of, so I'm from the UK and there's like a really big spike there and that's been building over the last few years. And, you know, you have 
the woman who wrote the Harry Potter books. Uh, she <laughs> I will shall not, not name be named. Her. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and her kind of links to particularly the UK media, and then in the US, there's like, I guess they're like the way their government runs like federally and within certain states and the power that they have in the politics to sort of shift around certain laws and bring in these bills um that's like affecting different parts of the country of a very big country um and obviously like post-trump you know everything that was stirred up there um and then here here's like an interesting one i mean as a non-australian i don't know the political context as well i've i've heard some people say like oh yeah it isn't maybe like as bad here because it's uh to, not australian to like care that much about stuff <laughs> like it's like um <laughs> but it's still like we're still seeing the the effects of that like from different national contexts like come in like with posy parker mm-hmm. um and yeah it's a strange i think one thing is that one beautiful thing is that people are reflecting on their gender more they're like engaging with like what does this gender thing mean and so we're seeing more discussions about the beautiful like diversity and possibilities within gender and sexuality and like the beauty that trans joy and gender euphoria can be Mm. and it's just um yeah a little upsetting that the flip side of that is people kind of seeing this happen and maybe being scared by it or or not sure how to deal with that rhetoric yeah Yeah. it's strange I feel like it's a big backlash that's kind of come out of nowhere but you talking just then has just kind of made me think about how um I know that a lot of your research is based with you know online communities and things like that and I feel like we've just had a couple of years of purely 100% being online right with Mm -hmm. like COVID and restrictions and everything like that and I don't know I feel like with a lot of my friends it's been quite a good time because you're isolated you're alone you're questioning yourself more and your gender and your values and your beliefs and things like that um and the only way to communicate that is online on a very public platform that isn't just in your general community and then also I don't know then you've got the backlash to that stuff as well. I don't know. Have you noticed um, just a spike in people online, I guess, examining their own gender and, I don't know, beliefs? (laughs) Yeah, massively. I mean, I feel like every conversation I have with people when we're talking through, you know, how did you sort of come to this relationship and sense of yourself, a lot of it is like, well, COVID was massive. You know, Mm. like you said, like, a couple of years where you're only online and the way people describe it is like all the other structures in life, they're just gone now. And like, you kind of see that maybe they don't make sense in certain ways or like the, if the normal is deconstructed, then what, what is there? And it's like a realm of possibility. And as well, when you have stuff like the TikTok algorithm mm-hmm. that is seeing you engage with certain content and then maybe feeding you more of it. And the more you see, the more you're able to like maybe see, oh, there's something of me in there. Um, and that's happened um, definitely for like a lot of my participants in terms of like gender, in terms of sexuality, in terms of neurodivergence as well. Um, a lot of people have said like 
the beauty of online is that you can see someone and they can explain something that you have gone through and provide you with language for it that you never had before Mm -hmm. Um, or describe a kind of experience or sensation and you realize you're not alone in having that experience and sensation and then you're like oh cool well (laughs) what does that mean (laughs) I'm suddenly not alone yeah yeah it's a real sense of um yeah, finding a sense of community or a connection um, and seeing a bit of yourself that you've maybe like never engaged with before reflected back at you. That was researcher Neve White. Catch the full interview on the Loud and Queer Talks podcast. State government has announced it intends to raise the age of criminal responsibility from 10 to 12 years old from late next year. The proposal would recognise children under 12 do not have a cognition to form criminal intent and cannot be convicted of a crime. Advocates say it doesn't go far enough, but Attorney General Jacqueline Symes is holding firm. I am very concerned that if you raised it too quickly, you are going to have unintended consequences, you're going to have kids falling through the gap and you're going to have a waiting list of kids stepping into custody. The proposal would give the government the option to raise the age further to 14 years old after the next election. Bridie Golding reports. Victoria threatened last year that he, Dan Andrews was like, oh yeah, if they don't do anything, then we'll do something. And now he has. We will raise the age of criminal responsibility in Victoria from 10 to 12 and then to 14 within four years. The experts have said that this is too long. It'll leave kids trapped in a, the quicksand of the justice system. The government announced that the youth justice reform would take place incrementally. So there'd be legislation introduced Mm. later this year and it'd lift the age to 12 next year. When there's a child and they're too young, they commit a crime, but they're too young to know what they were doing. So basically right now, under 10 is that age. But when we change this to 14, under 14 will be the age where you're too young to understand the consequences. I feel like when I was... 14. I didn't know what was going to happen next week. Part of the reason for only doing it partially is because there are a lot more offences by 13 and 14-year-olds. We've just seen in Queensland, 13-year-old killed two people and severely injured another in a car crash in Maryborough. Terrible news, but insane that it was a 13-year-old child. The whole idea behind raising the age is that they don't have the literal development of the brain to understand the consequences of their actions in the future. Raising the age is not something that happens by itself. There's a lot of prevention at a community level that needs to go on. And maybe that's not being funded enough. It's not the only thing that needs to happen to stop people, um, kids, going into the justice system. Making a mistake, then getting sucked into the court system and then getting potentially sucked into the juvenile detention system, you're never going to get out of that because you're 10 and then you're 11 and then you're 12 and that's formative years for your personality and your outlook on the world. And if you're in juvie and you're surrounded by other kids who are probably older than you, if you're at that youngest end of the spectrum, their brains have developed to a point that they know what they're doing. And whether that's because they've been in for longer, whatever, right? You're still surrounded by them and that's what you grow up with and that's what you spend those very formative and completely influential Mm. years of your life doing and experiencing. And so, you know, it is like quicksand. It's like a spiral. That was Bridie Golding for Represent, airing 5pm Tuesdays on Sin. Chefs have paid tribute to MasterChef judge 
Jock Zonfrillo, who died on the day of the cooking show's return this week. Zonfrillo was found dead in a Ligon Street hotel at 2am on Monday morning by police conducting a welfare check. Dessert chef Darren Purchase told The Project about Zonfrillo's life and legacy. I know that he absolutely loved doing the role of Master Chef because he loves passing on his knowledge. Mm. So it's just really infectious. Um, so much charm, so much charisma and just such a massive shock and a massive loss. MasterChef will now return this Sunday by the wishes of Zonfrillo's wife and family. Lizzie Thompson reports. The latest season of MasterChef Australia is going to be delayed after the shocking news of Jock Zonfrillo's death earlier this week. MasterChef was set to commence on Monday night. However, Zonfrillo was found dead in a hotel room on Ligon Street earlier that morning. Countless friends and colleagues have reached out to his family via social media, um, including celebrity chef Colin Fasnidge saying, RIP my friend, I hope we have a whiskey again someday. Very tragic. Joxon Frillo leaves behind four beloved children, the youngest of whom is just two years old. The new MasterChef premiere date is this Sunday and will be a tribute to his life and work. So Joxon Frillo, if you're not aware, if you're not a MasterChef fan, he was a Scottish chef, a restaurateur, and had been hosting MasterChef since 2019. He was among the cohort of new hosts after George Calambaris and that crew um, left the show. Um, and he was found in a hotel room on Ligon Street in the early hours of Monday, the 1st of May. Police officers responded to a wellness check at around 2 a.m. And they're at this time not treating the health as the death as suspicious. Um, this has obviously come as a massive shock to the entertainment industry. Um, yeah, really quick turnaround for Channel 10. Um, only finding out that morning that their host um, was sadly dead and there was a bit of debate around you know what what does channel 10 do in this situation they've basically filmed a whole season of masterchef and there are all these really incredible talented contenders that deserve to have um some exposure on this show um but at the same time it's now evident that maybe jockson filler was really struggling and, and no one else really saw that. Um, It's also come out just today, actually, that he um, was secretly battling bowel cancer for the past two years, which is something that, yeah, very few people in his life knew about. Australian comedian Will Anderson has Mm. a podcast, Willosophy, um, and there was an episode where he interviewed Jocks on Frillo about his life philosophy, and they just had, you know, a really nice little hour-long chat. And um, Jock revealed that in his youth, like when he was very young, he battled with heroin addiction. He's had a very hard, he had a very hard life and he became such a success and it's such a shame that he is no longer with us. That was Lizzie Thompson for Panorama, available on your preferred podcast platform. And if that story has impacted you, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Tasmanian Premier Jeremy Rockliffe has received the AFL's 19th licence from outgoing league boss Gillan McLaughlin. A federal government commitment to build a 22,000-seat stadium in the state secured the league's commitment. But state Labor opposition leader Rebecca White criticised the announcement. We've been very clear that we think Tasmania's priorities are health and housing and tackling the cost of living, not building a new stadium. Now, this remains our position and federal funding doesn't change the fact that it was Jeremy Rockcliffe who went to Canberra who made the argument for money to come to Tasmania for that project above health, above housing and above priorities like addressing the cost of living. 
for yet to be named men's team will enter the competition in 2028, with the women's team following in 2029. Ruby Littler reports. Tasmania is finally getting its own football team and a brand new stadium to boot, you know. But um, AFL CEO Gillan McLaughlin announced yesterday that the state will be granted the 19th AFL football licence. The federal government announced the $750 million stadium in a press conference last week, fulfilling the licensing requirements essential for the Tassie football team. And, I mean, Tasmania's actually been trying to join the league for a while. There's been two failed attempts, one in 1997, one again in 2008, and the team won't fully debut for another couple of years, and the stadium's slated um, to be ready by about 2028, I think. But yeah, um, it isn't all good news though because a lot of Tasmanians aren't super pumped with the news. There's a lot of questions about where is this money going to be coming from and it's a, it's, it's a valid question because especially with the current cost of living crisis and the current housing crisis, you know, it's like where, where is the money for the stadium going to be coming from? And also, it's kind of hard mm. to drive around that CBD centre. There's a lot of one-way streets, there's not any trams or trains and it's like great, we're going to get all this influx of people, keen footy-goers, but how are they even going to get to the stadium? It will be, might be cause a bit of a traffic. It's definitely been a really big issue for lots of Tassies and State Labor leader Rebecca White, the current government in Tasmania, is Liberal. And um, so the State Labor... So Rebecca White said, if I was Premier and I had a billion dollars to spend to benefit Tasmanians... I would spend it on real priorities like improving our health system, building more housing and lowering the cost of living. There's a lot of young footballers in Tasmania who I think it could make a good team and it's just like, but it's hard. Like, how do we have the infrastructure? Mm. Like, great, you can build the stadium, spend millions and millions of dollars on this, like hundreds of millions of dollars on this fancy stadium. But like, if people can't get to the stadium because they're stuck in traffic or because they can't have anywhere to stay to watch the games, like, I just don't know if it's very well thought out. That was Ruby Littler for Panorama, available on your preferred podcast platform. Senior Google computer scientist Jeffrey Hinton has quit the firm to freely discuss the risks of artificial intelligence. His research pioneered Google's AI system development for over a decade, earning his team a Turing Award in 2018. Hinton, known as the godfather of AI, spoke to CNN after his exit. If it gets to be much smarter than us, it'll be very good at manipulation because it will have learned that from us. And there are very few examples of a more intelligent thing being controlled by a less intelligent thing. And it knows how to program, so it'll figure out ways of getting around um, restrictions we put on it. It'll figure out ways of manipulating people to do what it wants. AI systems garnered notoriety with the release of ChatGPT in 2022, now the fastest growing consumer application in history. Vince Treese reports. Jeffrey Hinton, he, he pioneered it in the... 70s and 80s and he pioneered uh, a certain um, stream of AI called neural networking AI. It's it's a bit confusing. You kind of have to be a nerd to look into it. But he thought that they could mirror make AI look like or work like a brain so that all the circuits relearn and connect um, depending on the answer it's given and the response given back. It's it's just like it teaches itself essentially and and so he's he's the father of ai he kind of came up with the concept of what is behind all of ai at the moment but he left google uh recently in the last week because he wanted to leave google because he didn't feel like he could speak about ai freely 
um, without damaging Google. And so he wanted to be able to speak freely um, without considering the effects on the company. So he's done a few interviews. He he did he did a couple C and C B. I think they're the, they're an American group. Mm. And he was talking about in the interview it was about a fifty minute long interview. Uh, he talked he talked a bit about um, you know the dangers and how he started in AI. And then he did he's done a few different interviews. But one of the one of the things he said which scared me was he said I've come to the cl- conclusion that the kind of intelligence we're developing is very different from the intelligence we have. So it's as if you had 10,000 people and whenever one person learned something, everyone automatically knew it. And it's, that, that, is, that, is like, that, that means that that machine, the AI machine, is learning so quickly because it's, it's just pulling information from everywhere. That was Vince Treese for Panorama on the socials at Panorama Sin. Health Minister Matt Butler has announced a crackdown on black market vapes amid a rise in news among young people. Under-the-counter sales of vapes have been flourishing despite a ban on importing nicotine vapes without a prescription. Butler said this needs to change at the National Press Club this week. This is a product deliberately targeted at our kids, being sold alongside lollies and chocolate bars. Vaping has now become the number one behavioural issue in high schools, and it's becoming widespread in primary schools as well. This has to end. This must end. Next week's federal budget will include $234 million for initiatives to reduce vaping. Naya Barnes reports. All non-prescription vapes will be banned from being imported. Mm-hmm. Uh, the goal is to, well, one of the goals is to shut down any organisations selling vapes uh, in a retail setting and they'll all be oh. moved to pharmacies and um, packaged in, like, pharmaceutical drug package. There is also a ban on uh, all single-use vapes. Particular ingredients, flavours and colours will be banned because I think, as we might oh. have talked about before, they're like flavours that, in theory, would appeal to young people and children. And doctors will be able to pres- uh, prescribe nicotine vapes to those who are trying to quit smoking instead of having to get individual approval from the Therapeutic Goods Administration, which is, it's mostly, it's important uh-huh. that doctors will be the only people and they will have to have a prescription. We did see really good results with smoking. Like, um, according to the ABC, smoking rates in Australia are among the lowest in the world. And we did a lot of work. Like, there was that um, the case when they put... The, the photographs, the like warning photographs, increasing the price, which there's now going to be a tax, on, or no, there is a tax on tobacco, but it will be increasing for the next three years, which is estimated to bring in $3.3 billion over the next four years. Cool. There is going to be funding, so it's um, estimated to cost about $234 million, which will include uh, $63 million to campaign against vaping, but there will be $30 million to support people quit. You're listening to On The Beat from Sin Media's news team. Thanks for your company. We've got lots still to come. Keep up with the latest updates by listening live on 90.7 FM or digital radio in Melbourne or Geelong. Or listen anytime online. Just visit sin.org.au or search Sin. That's S-Y-N on your preferred podcast platform. And let us know what you think about today's stories by messaging at Sin Media on the socials. Stay with us. The James Webb Space Telescope has found water vapour near a distant planet. Scientists can't yet tell whether the vapour originated in the planet's atmosphere or is part of the signature of a nearby star. Operations manager Matt Mountain told 60 Minutes about the telescope's impact last month. We're seeing a universe we've never seen before. 
We thought it was there, we hoped it was there, but now we see it for the first time. The planet in question is called GJ486 and is 26 light years away from Earth, Sura Mishri reports. This planet in question, GJ486, is 26 light years away from Earth. It is 30% larger than Earth and it's orbiting a red dwarf. Red dwarfs are a lot more cooler than our sun is, so which means that this planet is hugging its stars. So it's it completes one orbit of its uh, parent star in 1.5 Earth days. It's going real, real, real fast, um, uh, which means the surface temperature of this planet is also really high. We're talking 800 degree Fahrenheit or 426 degrees Celsius, which is it is enough to just drive away the water vapor, drive away the atmosphere, or just erode the atmosphere of any planet. But uh, Web data suggests otherwise. This is very <laughs> close to its star, yeah. which means that there's this planet is being blasted by radiation, uh. which means that this planet's atmosphere is probably being torn away as it uh, orbits its star. The interesting thing, though, is that we don't actually know if water vapor is coming from the planet itself or if it's coming from the star. The way that James Webb Telescope actually figures out if a planet has certain chemicals in its atmosphere is through this process called transmission spectrography. Okay, so there's a star and a planet, when a star planet goes in front of the star, we detect those lights coming from the planet towards us. And these lights often hold clues as to um, what, co what composition a planet has. This particular planet if the atmosphere of this planet has water vapor and if it's being eroded away by the sun, which it possibly means that uh, this planet might have some volcanoes which is producing water, which is producing water vapor and steam. And if it's doing that, which means that it kind of has a self-sustaining atmosphere which just goes away and then comes back, goes away and then comes back. So in the future, if we ever get to a point where we do start terraforming or where we do start space colonization, sorry, space settlement, data like this, uh, information like this could possibly help us uh, inhabit planets. That was Sura Mishri for Panorama, airing 4pm Thursdays on Sin. Seven News has revealed the federal government intends to announce an increase to job seeker payments, but only for people over 55. The payment is currently $693 per fortnight for single people who have no children, with a higher rate for some people over 60. Treasurer Jim Chalmers did not confirm the speculation, but addressed ongoing criticism this week. Obviously, it's really important uh, that we get the job seeker payment right, that we do what we can. Uh, in tight budgets uh, and in an inflationary environment. Uh, but we shouldn't see the task ahead when it comes to Australians who are out of work uh, as one that is exclusively about uh, the adequacy of the payments. Job seeker payments have been below the Henderson poverty line since the end of the COVID supplement in 2021. Freddie Moffat reports... Last week we had a review about JobSeeker which described it as seriously inadequate and that the low, the low amount that the payments provide provide a serious barrier for entry to a paying job because you can't even fund life's essentials off it. So this review sort of said, hey, we need to raise this, the payments. The government and the Treasury outright said, 
not happening and it was completely ignored. But we've had a bit of a reversal yesterday where JobSeeker is set to rise next week with Budget Week, but only for people over 55. These are only media reports at the moment. Seven got to it first, but The Guardian independently confirmed it today with their own sources, uh, where the currently $50 a day rate which is paid fortnightly, would be raised for people over 55. It would not be raised for anybody under 55 or anyone on youth allowance, but apparently they'll consider it in future budgets. It's just like, it's just saying to young people, hey, we don't think you're worth it, which I think is a young voter. Like, I feel like young voters, out of the two major parties, they had, the la- they had Labor to go to because the Liberals were telling them to get stuffed. Mm. And now almost through this, we have the same sort of thing almost. The recommendations that were made last week in the review, they were going to cost about $34 billion to implement. They said, The Albanese government will always look to provide support for those in need where it is responsible and affordable to do so and weighed up against other priorities and physical challenges. That was Freddie Moffat for Represent on the socials. I'd seen Represent. The Guardian has revealed a Russian oligarch-funded Premier League club, Everton, while barred from entering the UK. Then Home Secretary Priti Patel handed down the ban in 2021 to Akasha Uzmanov, who continued to invest millions into the club. In March, Labour MP Chris Bryant urged Everton to cut ties with Uzmanov. And Everton should certainly be cutting ties with him already. Well, my anxiety is that we're taking too long about these things. I fear that the government is frightened of letters, lawyers' letters, from um, all these oligarchs' friends. UK sanctions issued against Uzmanov in 2022 amid the Russia-Ukraine conflict made it a crime to trade with the oligarch. Isabella Colbeck reports. You'll see a lot of um, millionaires and billionaires fund these Premier League clubs because it it does two things for them. It does it gives them community engagement, sort of makes them look like a man of the people sort of thing, but also it um, allows them it's a tax thing. Because a lot of these Premier League clubs give back money into the community, it can be can become a charity thing in the UK, so it can become it can be run off as charity. So due to his involvement within the Russian government during the Ukraine, the beginning of the Ukraine conflict, um, he had been given money to Putin and been a longtime friend of Putin, um, and he it was sanctioned originally just by the UK and then by Europe, which is what ended up um, being, which is why he was barred from. Uh, the UK after Europe put out a statement saying that these are the list of people that aren't allowed in um, and Priti Patel the secretary at the t- home secretary at the time um, put out the statement um, saying basically you're not allowed in um, unless you cut ties with Putin. Football is such a community thing it's such a community minded thing and it is such um, it gets called the working class game because it's uh, really for the people and Football has had quite a bad reputation after the, through the past like ten years, and I think that I think more people want football to be a force for good. And I think the ownership does matter. We see when Liverpool was bought by um, a Saudi billionaire, it was um, there was a lot of talk back about support for that club and where is the money actually going. I think Everton is such a strange example because it's such an old club and it's it's kind of. It's not one of the clubs that gets talked about in this sort of way mm. before this, but really what the problem here is is that um, they 
they're not open with their finances. Whereas a team like teams in Manchester, so Manchester City and Manchester United, are now uh, preaching that they're going to be more open about where they're getting their money from and where's it going. Where this, we don't know where the money was going. Mm. So it was obviously going towards the team, but um, what regards and. Um, he, the oligarch, also made his nephew the head of the board for Everton, so a lot of decisions were going through him, which isn't really how funding should work in football. That was Isabella Colbeck for Panorama, available on your preferred podcast platform. Five Melbourne universities took to the streets to protest poor working conditions in the education sector. The strike comes as part of a national tertiary education union campaign calling out low pay and a casualised workforce. National Trade Union Council Secretary Sally McManus spoke in support of the action this week. And now is the time to take action. Far too often we've seen universities strip away your conditions and put pressure on your workloads, which ultimately affects the quality of education for your students. We all know our universities need to change and we all need them to change. We need to aim higher for higher education. More strike action is on the way if universities don't respond by the end of June. Lizzie Thompson reports. The one at Melbourne University took place yesterday from 11am to 3pm. So tensions have really been on the rise since 2019 when the Enterprise Bargaining Agreement uh, with Melbourne University expired. So that's a long time out of date. Um, And without that agreement, workers just feel like they are not getting the pay they deserve, they are not getting the opportunities they deserve. They're particularly wanting to um, have their pay rise in, you know, to keep up with inflation. They want a casual conversion clause and less frequent structuring. So at the moment, I did an interview um, with my friend Tom, who's a lab tech at Melbourne Uni and a big, big voice in the Melbourne Uni union. And he says that restructuring occurs at the moment about every two years. So that means every two years, you could be out of a job or you could be working the work, the, the the amount of work for two people with less pay, um, yeah, there's there's a lot of issues with that. Um, at the um, strike yesterday, the union held a meeting and they decided that if the university had not responded to their demands by the 30th of June, then there would be more strikes and more frequent strikes. We've got tutors, staff, librarians. As I said, my friend Tom is a, is a lab tech at Melbourne Uni. Um, yeah, lots of people feel like they are being duped here. Melbourne University considers itself as one of the greatest universities in Australia, you know, up there with some of the best in the world. And the reason it's so good is because of the tutors, because of the staff who work really hard and are really intelligent, but they can only do so much for their students when they are overworked and underpaid. There's been a lot of casualisation in the education industry, particularly at Melbourne University. So um, during COVID, of course, lots of our universities lost money with international students going away. Um, But now that they're back and they are making more money than ever, where is the job security? As I mentioned earlier, this restructuring happens every two years. And in fact, um, I've heard it can even happen from semester to semester as well. That was Lizzie Thompson for Panorama, available on your preferred podcast platform. 
The federal government intends to double how much medication is dispensed to pharmaceutical benefit scheme users at a time. The change makes medication more accessible for chronically ill people and means they'll pay less for their medications. But Pharmacy Guild President Trent Toomey has spoken out against the plan. I've heard a couple of obstetricians come out and say it's a good idea. I'd love them to, you know, stick to looking after babies or if they want, they can come and spend a day in my dispensary and have a look at the pages upon pages upon pages of out of stocks when your local pharmacy places an order uh, for their medicines. Um, unfortunately, I may order 100, Carl, but receive two or three. The government intends to roll out the changes in three phases starting later this year. Lachlan Patrick reports. The government is going to change how much medication you can get from a pharmacy on the pharmaceutical benefit scheme. Um, pharmaceutical benefit scheme being the scheme basically where if you have medication that costs a lot of money, it's otherwise going to be really, really expensive. No, it's not. It's $30 and the government will pick up the tap. So that's all regulated and you can kind of, you get a prescription for your GP, you go into a pharmacy, you only pay $30. But they're now changing it, they're shaking up the system by going, instead of going to your GP every single month, especially if you've got a chronic illness that doesn't change, you're always going to need this medication. Having a doctor's appointment every month, going into the pharmacy every month, Mark Butler's gone, let's just do that every two months. So effectively, that's now halving the cost of the medication on the pharmaceutical benefit scheme because you're getting double the meds for the same amount of money and you're not having to go to the doctor as much. Mm. The pharmacy guild president, he's been speaking out going, if you've got heaps of people in September when this starts, right, it's going to be in three phases. So September this year, March next year, September next year. If you've got heaps of people kind of almost like having a run on pharmacies in September going, yeah, I can get double meds. Are they going to be enough? It would work itself out because they're only giving out the same amount of medication, but, you know, every two months instead of every one month. But that first month might be a bit difficult to get through as well. The other thing with pharmacies, though, right, is that they don't just sell meds anymore. No. Like, you go in there and they've in fully gone into, like, hospital gift store. Get some <gasps> get some Lego for your kids. Get some, like, you know, the you know the drugstore makeup. But if people aren't going in and making those discretionary purchases as much, of course the pharmacies are going to be losing out. And then maybe not as many of them can afford to operate. I want to circle back, though, right? There was this whole big hullabaloo in January, the pharmaceutical benefit scheme. It used to be $42.50. It went down to $30 and everyone was going, wow, we've got the Affordable Medication Act. We're cutting the cost of medication down by, you know, $12. But people on healthcare cards like you, Vince, missed out. And yeah. your, the price of your medication went up. Now, there was a, a study done by uh, Provocate. They found out that 90% of the scripts defense dispensed in pharmacies are to people with healthcare cards. So in January, 90% of the scripts actually went up in price. So now in May, this is the first decrease of the year that those people will see to the cost that they're paying. They're getting a 50% decrease. That's after the highest increase to the prices they paid for medicine in 20 years that came through in January. So some much needed relief for them. That was Lachlan Patrick for Represent, airing Tuesdays at 5pm. Australia's National Electric Vehicle Strategy is a federal government plan aiming to make for cars cheaper and more sustainable. It's a key part of the nation's net zero strategy, but how does it work? Vince Trace reports. Australia's recently announced National Electric Vehicle Strategy is a significant step forward in the country's efforts to reduce carbon emissions and combat climate change. 
The strategy seeks to impose a fuel efficiency standard on new cars and encourage the uptake of electric vehicles in order to cut 3 million tonnes of carbon emissions by 2030. The new strategy has been hailed as a major turning point for Australia, which until now had lagged behind the rest of the developed world in implementing energy standards and emissions reductions targets. Prior to this announcement, the only developed countries without energy standards in relationship to the transport sector were Australia and Russia. While the specifics of the CO2 limits are not yet determined, the announcements of their implementations mark an important shift towards a more sustainable future for Australia. The government has indicated that it will work closely with industry and other stakeholders to develop and implement the new standards with a focus on promoting the adoption of electric vehicles and reducing the carbon footprint of Australia's transportation sector. The Honourable Chris Bowen, the Minister for Climate Change and Energy, states that the plan endeavours to allow the public to have a better choice of electric vehicles and encourage greater use of cleaner, cheaper-to-run vehicles. Catherine King, Minister for Infrastructure, Transport, Regional Development and Local Governments, believes it will send a strong message to the global car industry, which when it comes to transport technology, Australia will no longer settle for less. The deal also looks good for the consumer's pocket. On average, putting energy efficiency standards on vehicles has saved drivers between five and $600 a year globally. A win-win for motorists. The move towards energy efficiency standards and carbon reduction targets is a crucial step in addressing the global climate crisis and meeting the goals of the Paris Agreement. As one of the world's largest emitters of greenhouse gases per capita, Australia has a significant role to play in reducing global emissions and promoting sustainable development. The National Electric Vehicle Strategy is a positive step forward in this direction, and it is hoped that it will be followed by further measures to address the urgent need for climate action. Tune in to Panorama next week as I talk to Terry Martin, a journalist and production editor from carsales.com on the implications of these standards and what consumers might need to know more about as we go into the future with these standards in place. That was Vince Trace for Panorama, available on your preferred podcast platform. This has been On The Beat from Sin Media's news team. Thanks for your company. I'm Ashikin. And I'm Declan. To keep up with the latest news updates, follow Sin Media on the socials. If you missed anything, visit sin.org.au to catch up or search SYN on your preferred podcast platform. And don't forget to tune in next week by listening live on 90.7 FM or digital radio in Melbourne or Geelong. Oh, 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 oh